Hey, fellow Wayfarers, we are coming to you from Portland, Oregon, and it is snowing, our first snow of the year. We're going to be talking with you about our newly released version of the Tao Te Ching. We call it Tao Te Ching, a playfully sincere rendition. And we are answering on this episode the big question, really? Another version of the Tao Te Ching? Why do we need it? Not only have there been many, many renditions out there for some time, we also started this a few years ago, and as we were traveling around the country uh, working through our version, we all of a sudden saw that people were popping up here and there with other versions. So we'll talk about some of those, but most importantly, we'll explain what is it about our rendition that we think is uh, helpful for at least some people. We think our translation can be really groovy for pretty much anybody. You could give it as a gift uh, this season for uh, anybody who is interested in sort of, uh, the sort of thing. But there is a unique angle uh, from which we uh, approach these uh, texts, the 81 chapters of the Tao Te Ching, and we'll talk about some of that now, and we're glad you're here along for the ride. Let's go. It is true. A lot of people are rightly going to wonder why on earth do we need another translation of the Tao Te Ching? I mean, one of the answers is there's 81 chapters to this this thing, and they're very short chapters. They're really just verses, you know, paragraphs often, and they're not they're not easy in mm-hmm. a sense to translate because of the nature of this old ancient text. It kind of throws out these characters that we kind of understand, but you have to do a lot of work, whoever you are. Well, it's, uh, to, yeah. to kind of to, to, to tease out what the what the connection between these Chinese characters is. Right. Because it's basically kind of like one word and another. It was it was written um, to be as short as possible because it was expensive to to have the the what to, to write it down. It could to, be on silk. Right, it could right, be on, all the it different could be ways on of, a bamboo strip. So, it's <laughs> you know, it's meant to be very precise and right. very short in a word choice, right? Like, yeah. um, just like short and simple. Uh, but that makes it actually not simple to understand what, yeah. you know, these four words that are together, what does that mean? There's a lot of things to kind of maybe fill in the blanks with. Right. And, You've got to do interpretation. Yeah. And there are ultimately many, many contexts that we will find ourselves in as human beings. As I say in the post face, in the little bit of the write up that I have at the end of the book, um, where, um, we talk a little bit about the the manuscript tradition mm-hmm. and the fact that there isn't really one stable manuscript tradition, even in the ancient world of the Tao Te Ching. People might add or take away things that didn't quite fit with their cosmology. They might change the way they think about warfare, depending on who's in power. Uh, so... We kind of take it as just as the the text itself really wasn't written just by one guy all at once named Lao Tzu. Uh, there may be a tradition from Lao Tzu, but it, it's edited over time, reconfigured. And then you have to, if you're not Chinese speaker, you, you have to translate it. And translation can allow us to understand there's different interpretations of it. In other words, instead of writing a book about the Tao Te Ching, mm-hmm. I think it's better for people to keep working on that that difficult task of of precision, reworking it. It's it's really a delicate task. It was yeah. a lot of fun in that regard. Well, and you know, you get a Chinese character and there's about I don't know. There's several English words that maybe can kind of dance around mm-hmm. the meaning of that one character mm-hmm. and whatever word you're choosing in English can also have its own connotations. And then already people have another idea in mind. So trying to figure out what English word is the best word to convey right. what is being said here is, is, is quite difficult, you know? Um, and 
you have to be careful because obviously the words that you're choosing do have their own connotations as well, right? right? And so are you, you know, misrepresenting um, by, you know, sort of putting two words together that don't, you know what I mean? Like that switches up the meaning a little bit. And then anyway, it's, so it is, it is delicate. It is, um, it is a little tricky. And because it's short, you, you could, and we argue you should, if you care about this thing, have multiple translations that you're working with. Some will be more playful. Some will be more rigid. You know, one that people love is Stephen Mitchell, which is a little bit more of a new agey version of it. It is very readable, very inspiring. Um, that one doesn't always stick closely to the original Chinese. Mm-hmm. Then you have others like Derek Lin, um, uh, which we recommend as as a real good standard for understanding the original as best you can. And uh, that one is going to be a, a nice baseline that you could then juxtapose with others. But to get the full meaning, this is the game, people laugh and say, well, why does, why does Lao Tzu say the Tao that you can put into words or as we say, set forth as dogma is not the Tao? Well, then why does he write 81 chapters after that? The answer is you have to dance around it. Yeah. Those words don't contain it, but you have to use words yeah. to to try to get closer to it. And so the more the merrier as far well, as we're in, concerned. In a certain, as maybe not the greatest example, but it does kind of remind me a little bit of when I've had a dream and I'm trying to explain my dream right. to somebody else. And it's like, it's kind of like this, but not like this. And it's like, you're just, you know, you're trying to get them closer, but it takes a lot to kind of explain, you know, what that image is or what that experience was in my dream to, you know, to, to share it with somebody. And mm-hmm. it, it, it can be quite difficult sometimes because dreams don't always make sense. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so where do we come in? You know, there are all these different options, but for, for us, there are some unique life experiences and contexts that we bring to the table as we're playing with this text and sharing it with others. We did this as a personal project, something that we wanted for ourselves, but we also thought would be valuable for others. We published it on our own instead of taking it to a publishing house because we don't think it's necessarily something that needs to be a standard for everybody, but there's a unique set of circumstances in our own lives that I think influenced this. And the first and probably the most important at the beginning was the way in which we come at this as folks who have become spiritual exiles from our background, our religious background in uh, conservative Christianity and in the deconstruction of that, in ghosting church, in essentially becoming ex-evangelicals was we, as we are kind of leaving that, as we're trying to find tools for emancipation, the Tao Te Ching has been very helpful for us to reframe certain things about life and meaning and the cosmos um, in ways that are still mystical, but we would say are a, a sober mysticism that doesn't require trust in gurus or church authorities, any of that sort of thing. We, we want to look for the truth really the absolute truth and not require superstition mm-hmm. along, along the way. That's just where we're coming from it. Uh, and so I think if you, if you want to understand what are some of the little, the little winks that we have throughout our version, it's not going to be very explicit in many places, but there are those moments where we're going to help people. We're not trying to Christianize it. We're trying to help people that grew up in organized Christianity, see some ways in which you could, view life and the sacred from a a slightly different angle. A great example of this is chapter 56, but just maybe the first three lines, would you, would you read just the first three lines of chapter 56? Cause it's, it's an example. Of course, chapter one, the Tao set forth as dogma is not the eternal Tao. That starts it right off by saying theology, ideology, this isn't the thing itself. And I think that's, by itself, the most important insight. But we have little things like that here and there throughout the text. So chapter 56, the wise aren't preachy, the preachy aren't wise. Sit in silence. And this is the thing that really, I think, you discovered as you were working with the kids um, who had kind of come on Wednesday nights for uh, contemplative prayer, Mm -hmm. silence, in your yin yoga classes outside during the, the COVID mm-hmm. time when we were outside on the, on the uh, lacrosse field. And, um, and so it's, 
it's not necessarily even a rejection of theology as such, but a recognition that the real deal is sometimes finding that place of silence to contemplate naturalness uh, without so many words. Words are fun, but I think we grew up in a world where religion was about going and sitting and listening to a lot of talking. Mm-hmm. We didn't we didn't spend as much time in an Episcopal setting or an Eastern Orthodox setting where there was a um, kind of that effective aesthetic element as much. It was more, it was cognitive. It was doctrinal. It was cognitive. It was theological. It was about debates. A lot of people saying, we're not this, we're not Methodists, we're not Calvinists, we're not Catholics, you know, we're not evangelicals. And so there was a lot of, a lot of cognitive stuff to it. And so for people that want to stay in some kind of spiritual, but not religious zone, right. And Mm -hmm. not leave or not lose that, that mystery. We think this text can be very helpful. And that's kind of why we started, you know, with it in many ways. Yeah. Well, and I would say that, you know, a lot of that. Also there's the sit in silence. If you continue in that chapter, it also um, talks about uh, release your entanglement, release entanglements and soften your gaze. And, um, and I, you know, it, it reminds me of, you know, I've, I've heard before, you know, you could, you could meditate anywhere. I mean, if you think you're stuck in a grocery store line, okay, we're coming up into the holidays, right. Mm -hmm. And you're at some sort of store, um, you know, waiting at the check stand or whatever. And I mean, whatever's going on inside your mind at that time, it could be the difference of, you know, like just coming away you know, peaceful and happy and fine or really irritated on how long it takes. You can just watch the check stand person, not be able to find an item or something. And they might have to go like grab something and it it can really, um, your patience can get really thin, Mm -hmm. but if you're using it as an opportunity to meditate and sort of, okay, well, what's going on? Where's my thinking brain right now? Mm -hmm. What am I focusing on? Um, am I judging other people? Am I judging a situation or am I now like trying to kind of release those thoughts and then quiet your brain, you know, soften your, your gaze and just sit there and basically meditate while you're standing there in line. Mm. It could be the difference of being extremely calm that entire time versus so riled up that now you're you're frustrated as you're pulling out of the parking lot and bringing that home to the <laughs> wherever else right. you're going next, you know, so. Yeah. Anyway, I just saying that um, that a lot of these things in here, it just it's helpful. Like it, for instance, with that chapter, to just like okay, like where am I mentally? How you know? Check yourself, kind of sometimes, mm-hmm. um, and then engage in this other in this other spot, this other more yin like you know um, posture of like kind of pulling yourself out, looking at the big picture and not getting so like emotionally or physically involved with the exact moment that you're in. Yeah. Learning how to flow. And that's something that Mm -hmm. maybe we didn't get as much of when we were growing up in evangelicalism where you're actively engaged and you're kind of punching out at the culture and and constantly thinking, Mm -hmm. I don't know. That was judging. Oh yeah. We would listen to music and say, Oh, too bad. That guy's going to hell. (laughs) You know, am I allowed to listen to you too? You know, these, these kinds of questions you're asking. Well, and even that, like even, okay. So if I was a Christian and in that situation in line or whatever, one thought would be, Oh, I can just like start praying or something. But even in your prayers, you're constantly engaging your thinking brain. And Our so, prayers were often very cognitive. Very right. cognitive. And you're like, when you're praying to God, you're like speaking in, you know, out loud or in your head to God and sharing what's going on. Um, it doesn't offer the ability to listen. It doesn't offer the ability to receive. It's, it's more, you know, at you kind of thing. And I think that that adds to sort of sometimes I think that um, the you know, I guess the hecticness or the craziness, it doesn't like, it doesn't offer that, that calmness of releasing your entanglements. It's almost like you're acknowledging them even more. And there's a time and a point and a purpose to that too, but I don't find it, I don't find it calming in that moment. So, you know, so we're coming at this as folks that are deconstructing our, our religious background. We still love Christian mysticism. We still love the teachings of Jesus. You'll hear more about that, whether you like it or not. <laughs> you can always not listen, but we're going to be uh, releasing something else coming up soon related to the teachings of Jesus and ghosting church. Uh, so we're not, 
we're not not interested in that. It's just that we're we're kind of deconstructing our uh, churchiness. But there are others that maybe don't want to go with us down that path, and that's okay too. We recommend not looking at 19th century texts that try to just appropriate the Tao Te Ching for Christian purposes. But there are some some nice resources that'll help you with the resonance between these things. For instance, uh, Hiram Monk Damascene has a very weighty book called Christ the Eternal Tao, and that talks through some of the, um, the again, those resonances between Eastern Orthodox Christianity in particular and the Tao Te Ching. There's also a book by Marshall Davis. It's called The Tao of Christ. Marshall Davis is a non-dualist. That is, he emphasizes the oneness of all, all human beings, human beings with God, human beings with nature. And so if you're in that more mystical Christianity, maybe you're a fan of Richard Rohr, you might want to hear a little bit of uh, uh, this kind of thinking from Marshall Davis. And then if you're comfortable in a progressive Christian context, if you're a, like a, a mainline Christian in a, in a mainline denomination and you're hum- comfortable there, uh, we recommend maybe you want to pick up Mark Mullinak's Tao Te Ching, Power to the Peaceful. And that's something that is kind of emphasizing the social justice side of thing, uh, nonviolent a kind of spirituality. And I think each of those will maybe be helpful to you if you have some connection to Christianity in some way. And and the point is, each of these folks does what they do in a, in a slightly different way. And that's great, as long as you understand what they're after, what they're trying to do. We're not trying to convince people uh, about really any of these resonances so much as we're trying to help people that have this mental landscape of Christianity if you're coming from that background, how is the Tao Te Ching playing with some of those same images, but in different ways? You see, you see the difference? We're not trying to say that Tien, heaven, is the God of Christianity in the exact same way. Uh, that's, that's that older 19th, 20th century idea that all religions are basically saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. And we don't think they're all basically saying the same thing. They're treating similar themes, but they're coming at it from different angles. So that's the first one. Our translation, we think, is important for helping people understand how to get emancipation from ideologies that are toxic and dogmatism, or at least stand aside from dogmatism for a second to be able to get maybe a different angle on well, it. As, well, as I do, I do think that it is important um, that as we have more and more information available to us, even just, just the... Um, additional information of some transcripts that have been found of the Tao Te Ching. Yep. They help bring some perspective to what is being said in these chapters. If if you take a look at an earlier version that didn't have those to even bounce off of or take into account, it's going to look different, right? And if you say, oh, well, this was the version <laughs> that, you know, came first or something, you know, like, or whatever, like this is, you know, the one that was popularized at a certain time and that's the only one we should stick with. You're missing out on this new available information that can shed some light on stuff. And so I think anytime that we get super stuck in, oh, this is the only thing. I mean, that's the other thing too about even our own translation is I know as we keep going through it, we're going to be like, oh, I kind of see this a little differently. I mean, that was part of the reason that was hard to, to stop and publish it. it. Because, you know, like, as you go through, you kind of see a new perspective sometimes to each of these chapters. And you're like, oh, wait, you know, what about this? And anyway, um, I think we could keep doing that. And we probably will (laughs) make some changes as we go along, um, you know, in the future or whatever. But if you're not at all attached to Christianity, we still think you can get a lot out of our version. But that's just kind of why we thought it was worth you know, doing it. But if you're dogmatic about anything, I think you're going to lose out. Definitely right. It is doesn't, all, <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, any, like, I mean, you could be coming from you could be coming from some guru scene. You know, where matter, yeah. yeah. Now, the second thing, in addition to Christianity, was your training and your work as a Yin Yoga instructor, mm-hmm. and so that comes into play. So we have some ways in which um, we are kind of having fun weaving yoga themes into our. Um, our understanding of what's going on here. And so for instance, uh, I think I really liked what, uh, what you brought to chapter 36. Would you read that? If you want to exhale, first take a deep, sorry. 
If you want to exhale, first take a deep breath. If you want to relax, first tense your muscles. If you want to clear your mind, first notice your frantic thoughts. If you want to receive, first give. This is how to perceive the light that's hidden amid the shadows. Flexibility overcomes rigidity and gentleness conquers force. So don't try to pull a viathon from the sea with a fish hook. In leadership, remember to play your cards close to your vest. Now, by the way, you can see the leviathan and the fish hook, that comes from the book of Job. It's just a little allusion or a nod to it, not trying to... Uh, make any claims that they're that they're connected directly, but there's that same kind of theme. So it's we're kind of like trying to bridge some gaps. But that first part mm-hmm. that's supported by the text. But we we wanted to have something that you could even use in the context of helping people. Well, and as I was, as class. I was reading, you know, like looking at the characters, um, and I realized, you know, like yeah, like from my experience. This, this is true. Like you have to, you know, like if you just like, if you're just sitting there and all of a sudden you're trying to exhale or release, like you, it is best to kind of like fill up your air first and then like let it all out, you know? Um, and anyway, I just think that, um, like those, those are things that are very much, you know, part of the practice of when I was in yoga and I was like, yeah, like this, this, this definitely makes sense. This is, so it's not like, it's it's not like that chapter was necessarily telling you how to meditate or how to do movement, but, but that connection, but it did say tense release or, you know, you know, like that. Another thing that we bring to this conversation is an interest in our own lives in understanding politics. And there is no doubt that one of the reasons we fell in love with the Tao Te Ching was a spiritual anarchy that you find also in the work of Ursula Le Guin, the the the, the fiction writer uh, and author who was also herself an anarchist from Portland. And she, in the 70s, translated, I think it was the 70s, translated uh, the Tao Te Ching herself and uh, did so uh, largely with that understanding that, that there is an, a kind of anarchism to the text. And if you, if you haven't been following us, uh, sometimes maybe a better term for folks is libertarian socialism, um, it's not madness or chaos, uh, but I think there's no better illustration of how this political philosophy enters in than chapter 80. Really one of my favorite pictures in the entire book, this, this, this imagery of the ideal village that I think is helpful for folks to understand what is a spiritual anarchy going to look like. Um, it's not just theoretical, it's very practical. Would you read that, chapter 80? The ideal society is a modest country with small, close-knit villages. It stores up sufficient weapons, but only for defense. It respects life and death. So even though it has vehicles and boats, it doesn't use them for foreign invasions. Though it's well-armed, it doesn't have to put its armies on display. Instead, it celebrates and records the simple joys of communal life. Their food is delightful. Their clothes are artful. Their dwellings are tranquil. And their customs are mirthful. They can see other villages in the distance. They can hear neighboring roosters crowing and dogs barking. Yet throughout the course of their lives, they never go over to complain or quarrel. Now that's not going to be that different from other renderings. I think I'm pretty proud of the way we, we pulled that one off. Yeah. But like, it, so the customs are mirthful. Mirthful was a word that Augie was like, we need more mirth, mirth. you yeah, know, during right, Christmas right. and stuff. And like, so that yeah. was just, you know, but that was, that hit at, you know, that was one of a possible word choice to use at that time. So it, it's bringing yeah. a piece of us yeah. and our family and some and, of the and our understanding of, of, a, of a healthy anarchism. Yeah. So for instance, you know, I resonate with Emma Goldman, the, the anarchist Emma, Emma Goldman, who says, if the revolution doesn't allow dancing, it's not my revolution. In other words, there's some people who are so caught up in the cause of, of 
anarchism as a as a political way of thinking that they think it's it's bad to have any fun you know and that's no good right so that mirthfulness that that joy of the community a kind of uh, maybe syndicalism federate federative system that's described there is really helpful and important but throughout our rendering we are careful to be attentive to the idea of governing of states we were kind of fine-tuning that because we'll talk about a country instead of a kingdom, mm-hmm. a country instead of a state. And uh, there are some times when we can't avoid it when we're talking about governance, but we want to talk in our rendering of leadership rather than domination or, or right. control and that sort of thing. Well, and, and there was another chapter too. Um, I don't remember which one it was, but um, that basically it hit on the idea that let the people make their homes like, and, and, and do their art, like do what it is that they want, you know, for a living. Like in other words, like if the, if the, if you're governing and you're trying to tell people exactly how to live and exactly how to make their money, they're going, it's going to be upsetting. It's eventually it won't work because people will be frustrated with what they're doing and where they're living. And it was like the key to good governing is allowing people to live in a way that honors what, they need and want to do and, and, and make their living how they want to, um, with, with the least amount of, um, regulation needed to make that happen. Um, you know, obviously, you, you know, you want to look out for folks, but like, you get what I'm saying? Like that, you know, it's, it's best to kind of get your hands off of things as much as possible. Yes. Yes. The, the government being non-intrusive. Now, what's interesting about this is, is this is not only a, a, a decision that you have to make in the rendering of a text, related to each word, the manuscripts themselves are not all of one voice related to government because they were edited at different times with different uh, rulers. Yeah. And maybe... And for different purposes for different, themselves. Well, and then also whether or not they thought the ruler that was in play was a, a good person was an interesting issue, or maybe they were intimidated by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been some times when folks said, well, you can have an authoritarian leader because that's natural. There's that kind of nihilistic Taoism uh, that's I don't like, but you can see that. And that's why the, the different sources that were recently discovered, uh, there were these uh, Dui uh, silk texts discovered um, in uh, 1973, though they were created in 168 BCE. They have one kind of take on warfare and government, and there's a slightly different take that you'll find in the Guodian bamboo slips, uh, written maybe 278 BC, but discovered in 1993. So there's not just a translation question, but there's just the recognition that over time, these are edited in different ways. So anyway, that's something else we bring, the political aspect of it. Another thing that we thought, um, so we were, we were traveling around and we thought as we were doing this, um, what does what does this text say for our context as we're living in vehicles, traveling around through people's land, mm-hmm. through public land, through the environment, all of that? And that was on our minds early on as we were rendering chapter 15. Would you read that? Yeah. The ancient Tao surfers were keen, deep, and inexpressibly artful. There is no way to fathom their wisdom. All we really can do is describe how they moved. They were careful as when crossing an icy stream, conscientious as if always being seen. They were respectful as trekkers hiking through private land. They were elegant and yielding like a melting icicle in the morning sun. They were natural like unfinished wood. They were wide open like a valley, which lets muddy floodwaters tussle its landscape, then lets the silt settle in clarified streams. Then it stirs it up in pools once again, reawakening life. We really wouldn't have been able to to get that imagery down if we hadn't been looking at this alongside of a river. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like kind of taking walks. The other thing that was interesting is around the time that I remember looking at this chapter, there was a lot going on even um, like with our politicians and like kind of scrutinizing their private lives and things. And, and, and even now, like sometimes people will be like, Oh, I don't really, 
you know, I don't care so much about the characters of my uh, leaders or politicians. Mm-hmm. I care about their policies and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And, and um, the, that line where conscientious is if always being seen, like um, the talks about how the sage basically is a person that is going to live their life the same way, whether somebody's watching or not. Right. You know, and that's just who they are as a person. And I think that like, that matters so much because like that's integrity. That's who you are. That like that tells so much about a person is how, how are they acting when they aren't being watched? And I don't understand sometimes the way that people think, Oh, well it just matters when you're being watched, how you present yourself. Cause no, I mean, what's deep inside, what really is you is what's happening when you're not being watched. And so anyway, it was just interesting because around this time, you know, there was so much, you know, debate about, like I said, politicians' private lives and saying, oh, that doesn't matter, you know, or even, you know, like with business people or leaders or bosses or whatever you think, it, you know, I don't really understand that idea of thinking that it doesn't matter, um, you know, what it, what you're doing behind closed doors. <laughs> I mean, it truly does. That's just who the person is. And this chapter really kind of resonated with me and that like kind of processing through all of that saying this is how you act, you know, like regardless of what's going on. Anyway, the other thing is we have traveled a lot. We've been to many different places. We also have seen uh, Americans kind of present themselves. um, I don't know. It's like they walk into an area and like, for instance, we were that one time that we were in that bar and it was in England and we were in Wales or Wales. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. Sorry. And you know, one of the, an American comes in, we just kind of overhear the conversation. It was like, do you have any white Zinfandel? And it's like, (laughs) like, clueless about their surroundings. Right. Like I I think that that's one of the things uh, with, tourism in general that when yeah. we see americans are off or can be not always and the brits by the way colonial can, brits can be very clueless about just expecting to go to other places and bringing their their world with them rather than embracing the culture or the area around mm-hmm. them instead and i think um sort of when you're traveling you know set aside your own your own things just to observe, learn, and partake of other people's customs and what they can share with you. Right. Um, you know, food habits and all sorts of things. You could take it or leave it later and say, hey, you know, I didn't care for this. Or you know, But to yeah. come in and expect it to be like America when we travel to other places, then just stay in America. Yeah. <laughs> and even just traveling in, within America, it's that, bull, that kind of like bull in a yeah. China shop thing. You know, tourism as such, the tourism as we've seen it is both capitalist and colonial mm-hmm. and, and unsavory. Mm-hmm. I think when I think about some of the students I've had, like uh, like Sam Ryden, who has backpacked through the world, and that's kind of who I had in mind, somebody who's taken photographs, not really intrusive, very elegantly yeah. moving through space. And the other thing I would highly recommend if you are traveling is if you're trying something different or new and somebody's presenting something to you, watch your face because yeah. our facial expressions can share so much if we don't like something and we show disgust. Like, yeah. that's just really, really disrespectful, rude. Yeah. <laughs> disrespectful. Even if you don't like it, you know, like you can smile and you don't have to like partake. But I'm just saying, I, yeah. I think we do well to to watch our expressions and our actions when we are um, in other people's territories. So our, our rendition takes into account our own deconstruction of Western evangelical Christianity, fundamentalism. It takes into account your work as a yin yoga teacher. Our experience It takes traveling. into account traveling. It takes into account our interest and, in, you know, discussion and, and research into anarchy and spiritual anarchy. But probably one of the most important is our engagement with death in two ways. First, most obviously, the year ago death of our son. And we we made some changes yeah. towards the end and uh, probably good ones because you were also intending to use this for folks who needed care, spiritual care even, uh, as in your work as a death doula, but care that was kind of spiritual, but not religious. There are people in that boat. And in fact, mm-hmm. that's kind of where you come in most handy. There are some folks, they might have clergy that they turn to specifically and especially 
um, as they're facing death. But for folks who kind of get triggered by having a, a person in a collar show up, there is a way in which this text can be, I think, very helpful for facing death. But we, I think, very, I was very glad to see in the last you know few months as we were finalizing it, we we made sure to take into account this concern for death. And actually, this was a change that I made because I you had kind of gone through and um, sort of did like a first over version of the mm-hmm. chapter, and I came through and recognized. Stacy spent some a lot more time. Stacy's more of a you're more of a detail oriented person. So I, yes, I would look at the text, but you did not let me too quickly take poetic license right. uh, in, in some direction. Yeah. You there, was, is, there is sometimes we, we fought about We it. had some arguments. We, the, we argued a lot know, about it. I, I, you know, I let the Leviathan, that one that we mentioned, I let that stay, but there are certain times where it was like, Hmm, I don't know. This is that we are taking some license here. Yeah. I know? think that was probably that that's one. Actually, that's maybe an, another theme here is that one of the things that we bring to the table is there's two of us yes. and we're bouncing back and forth with very different personalities. I'm a free spirit. I'm, I want to take this thing and, and go crazy with it. And you're kind of tethering it back to the text. Right. Where I, I'm more detail oriented, wanting to as much as possible, stay true to the original. Um, but also like putting in it what, like what we understand the meaning to be. So you can make it more poetic. I can make sure that it's true to as true as we can to the yeah, original type yeah. of thing. But anyway, yeah, so we did go back and forth because there are sometimes we very much disagreed as well as Jeff was like, I spent a lot of time making this sound really pretty. And I'm like, yeah. but it doesn't say that. Like yeah. you can't, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Anyway, so, um, but back to this chapter 51, uh, one of the things that I noticed about this was that one well, in, in chapter, some of the chapters in general that I, when, things like death would come into the chapters. I think there's a very big tendency for uh, people to use euphemisms and not actually, uh, not actually like just be straightforward with what's being said. I think that we, I don't know, there's a lot of, you know, at this point, (laughs) one of the chapters even had said, you know, that, um, you know, if you can, if, if a society holds death over people as a punishment, then they can control them through the fear of death. And for so many reasons, I think that, um, you know, we, we have, well, we, we've, we fear death. I think we've been taught to fear death. I think that's how, uh, people sell us more things, you know, control we have us. life insurance, religion, even, like religion, all this, you have religion, what you buy all think of every, think of, if you think of right now in your house, what might be in your house so that you live longer or, you know, look younger, longer, or, you know, all these different things like, cause it sells, it sells. Right. Right. <laughs> but anyway, um, back to chapter 51, the Tao births them. Then de nurtures them. Matter affects them. Life events complete them. There's not a single living thing that doesn't exalt the Tao and proclaim does glory. They exalt the Tao and proclaim does glory, not through coercion, but spontaneously because of who they are. So the Tao gives birth to them. Then de nurtures them, tends to and teaches them, completes and cultivates them, nurses, and buries them. It births but does not own them, gives without opposing obligations, leads without coercing. They call this the mystical de. So in that part where it says nurses and buries them, often um, often the word that's used is protect them, nurses and protects them. Uh, another one could be like shelters them. Mm-hmm. But the idea of it really is burying and when, you know, the ground, it's going to protect, Covering shelter, over. cover, yeah. you know. Um, and yet everybody sort of shies away from the, the buried part of it. But right. it is true that like that's one aspect of it. It's what the happens takes at the you end. Through the it's, natural cycle. it's yeah. all the way from birth to, to death. It's from, you know, the whole process. It's yeah, the whole experience of existence. Uh, and by leaving sort of the, the death part out or the berry part out, it's leaving out in some ways the ending, <laughs> if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I just, I just think it's, I think it's far more, uh, 
important to see that full cycle and not kind of glaze over it a little bit Mm. to make it sound a little bit less frightening. Now, finally, as we think about what we, what we brought to this crafting of this version, there are some just basic choices that we made as we were rendering it that I'm feeling really good about because it's not something I could find anywhere else. So for instance, when we talk about Shenren, the, the holy person or the sage, we still talk about the sage, but one of the things that we did kind of towards the end was we got rid of the definite article, the definite article meaning the, the sage. And this is because so often, especially in the West, we're influenced by Plato and uh, what we call in philosophy essentialism, this idea that there is the Indian, the Lutheran, the Catholic, the Chinese person, which is not true. This is totalizing, mm-hmm. um, to use kind of post postmodern language. You, uh, you don't want to do this because it, it erases all of the differences. There isn't just one kind of Christian. There isn't just one kind of Taoist, one kind of Buddhist. The Buddhist doesn't exist. A Buddhist exists. Mm -hmm. The sage as an ideal makes a lot of sense to a Platonic mind. But a sage, this is an invitation to the reader, to us, to say, well, we can kind of try to live into this. Right. Well, yeah. Opposed to say if it's the guru or, yeah. you know, like something where like, well, huh. I mean, I know guru is completely different than well, sage. Well, no, not so but, much, but like the teacher, the right, guru. That, like there's like, oh, this am one. I a teacher? Yeah. Can I ever be a teacher? Or, right. you know, so it, it basically, it, it could in its suggestion of, like it's sets it's set apart yes. as something different. The and would I ever cross yeah. into that category or not? Or even worrying about crossing into that category is it misses the whole point. We as didn't well. we didn't <laughs> want to have the sage because we didn't want people looking for the sage exactly. to go hand over their autonomy to. <laughs> or yeah. yeah, or or yeah, or to differentiate between one person over the next is oh this person's a sage, this, one's, this not. one's not. Yep. And then along with that, we originally, if you've ever been tracking with us for a while, we've always gendered the sage, gendered a sage as she, mm-hmm. her. And that's what we were doing for a while. I think Stephen Mitchell goes back and forth. So sometimes he'll use he, sometimes she, mm-hmm. which was pretty revolutionary at the time and, and pretty helpful. But. Well, the Tao Jing does not gender. Period. Because it just doesn't. Chinese doesn't. It just, it, yeah, yeah, it just it's not, didn't. Yeah. So by doing that, um, when you ever, even if you flip flop, it's still, I feel like it's still, um, it either excludes or uh, puts pressure on anybody that identifies as a he or a she in that context, mm. you know, if, or doesn't, <laughs> for instance. Mm. So like the, it's, it's not there in the text. So why even put it into, yeah. uh, you know, any translation. And, and for that reason, again, we wanted to make this for personal use. And so we wanted this to be for us something that we felt comfortable with the way we would speak to a group of people. We would want to use this more recent convention that even the uh, APA uses. And that is to be able to talk about the, the, they as a third person pronoun, um, some people, they say, my pronouns are they, them. And then also there's a way of using they, them in the singular to include everybody, regardless of their gender expression or identity. So, uh, so we really, I really like that. There are some times when somebody who is more old, uh, old timey might come across it and get confused uh, but there are moments in the text where you're going to see a use of they in the third person. As an example, would you read, Stacy, chapter 49? A sage is not closed-minded, but considers what ordinary folks have on their minds. I'm good to those who are good. I'm good to those who are not good. This is the goodness of duh. I hope in those who are hopeful. I hope in those who are hopeless. This is the hope of duh. 
A sage engages the world. They bring balance to it by carefully uniting their heart with it. Ordinary folks, hearing about their wisdom, pay attention to their actions. So a sage sets a wise example for others, as if the people were children in their care. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy with how that came out because originally we were going to do that. And then we were going to call all the Yang people out there in the world. We were going to call those people men. So the sage was she. And then the, the people out there in the world doing the Yang stuff, hustle and bustle business. Those were the men. And when we met that fortune teller <laughs> and uh, they said to us, no, it's not like the masculine is going to be replaced by the divine feminine. That's a kind That's of an older. That's already been done. Yeah. Or at least maybe tried in the new age circles. No, kind of recognizing kind of like the, the, the concept of Avalokiteshvara or, or Guan Yin, this kind of bringing together of the masculine and feminine. Right. Well, and, and with the Tao Te Ching, it's all about the yin and the yang. And yeah. it's not like, oh, there's one person that's yang and one that's yin. It's to, that together. And as much as you can recognize and understand the masculine and feminine feminine in within yourself, is you're more of a complete person mm-hmm. than if you just try to fall into one expression or the other and rule out the other. Because for whatever reason, you might think it's unacceptable or something, right? Because yeah. there's a yin and yang aspect to everybody. And it may be in different degrees, but mm-hmm. it's healthy to incorporate both. Now, what's interesting is there is this idea just at, at one or two places in the text where it says, you know, you want both. But if you have to make a decision, if you're 50-50 on how to, how to flow, <laughs> flow yin, mm-hmm. flow water, flow, flow passive. Mm-hmm. Don't be so aggro. Don't be so active uh, for your own good and for the good of what you're trying to do. Anyway, I really, I think that was helpful. And then finally... You know, I think what was nice about the way we worked through this text was we just kept kind of polishing the words because we wanted these words to be able to ring true and to, and to have a feeling, a texture to them that would be something you could take with you for a long time in life. Fact is, a lot of the very accurate translations are hard for us to memorize. They're hard for us to understand on the first pass. Yeah. Then there's stuff that's really easy to understand. Like we mentioned, Stephen Mitchell, who's great. Those are really memorable, but I'm not always sure if I memorize that it will be helpful for me to use in a class. Well, and sometimes it does, it it can stray from some of, you know, there's, there's a way in which like, you can take some liberties and everybody does, mm-hmm. um, but it does stray a little bit more from the original in a, in a way that you're wondering, like, how how much longevity would there be then, right. perhaps? You, you want it to be justifiable mm-hmm. by the text. In any case, our purpose was to share our hearts with the rest of the world and especially people that may be spiritual exiles, spiritual refugees like we are. And for people who are trying to live and survive in this tumultuous world, a uh, world that kind of feels chaotic at times, that's that's where we're at. So this mm-hmm. is kind of a Western thing. It's not the last, hopefully. Hopefully you, dear listener, if you get into it, find yourself some online tools. There, uh, we'll put in the, I'll put in a couple links to ways that you could double check our translation against the original Chinese. And uh, if you just go to that link, We'll have that at the show notes at protectyournoggin.org. And maybe in that well, process, you'll do your own translation. And that's, and that's part of it, too, is just that we, um, you know, we were going to go through it anyway to try to understand it. And, and for, you know, we mentioned even in the back of the book for our own purposes. And so if we're going to spend all this time doing this, um, you know, we might as well write it down and share it with others. Right. And it, to the yeah. extent that it might be helpful for other people as well. And if not, <laughs> yeah. you know, like you said, like is it build your own or, uh, you know, find your other, you know, your own Run favorite. it up against others. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, and then in all of this, for me, uh, my, my professional life has been interested in philosophy and religion. That's to me, if I, if I try to figure out what the heck am I in that regard in my training you know, my graduate work, I'm a historian of philosophy and religion, certainly focused on the 16th century and philosophy of religion in the early modern era, 
But when I was at Oxford, the nice thing was you got to go hang out with all sorts of people, talking Vedanta, talking medieval mysticism, talking modern, postmodern philosophy, Wittgenstein. I mean, that I don't recommend it to everybody because Oxford doesn't give you that precision that folks want if you're going to be a professor. But if you just want to grow and understand the world, you get to sit in. You just walk all around town and you could pop right into any religion philosophy uh, conversation, really, that's a lecture if you're a member of the university. And, and through that, my interest in comparative religions, but also just in philosophy generally, is something that I also brought to this. Yeah, well, and as well as, important and me. you've had experience like translating Latin and some of that and trying to like decipher what, yeah, how does translation work? Yeah, like know? what, what is, yeah, what, it's not just word for word, but you've also got to convey the meaning behind it all as well. Yeah. Um, if, if you want to, that's been important to me. Some people want to get an A plus on the translation test. Mm -hmm. I was more interested in us being able to, to sit with over a multiple years of, uh, of contemplation, really sit with each of these lines. Yeah. And I, and I would and say, then convey what that core meaning was not so much the wording, but the meaning. That's I, why it's a paraphrase. And I always do, you know, I'm grateful for those that have done just the strict translating because that will then be there to then you, you know, each if there's, uh, you know, there's, I'm sure there's meanings that we're missing and that we've, you know, yeah. keep us honest. But yeah, so then that way you're always have something to go back to to say, okay, what was going on here in this and how, you know, how does this, what does the sentence mean, right? And there, in the future, there might be even more access to information or whatever that would then shed future light on, on the meaning of some of these things. So, um, you know, I think for our, era and time where, you know, we're happy to provide our translation. And as you've said before, like, it's not, definitely not meant to be the end all or, or for everybody, right? It's just yeah. a version. And, and if you want a little piece of our hearts, yeah. we put a lot of things kind of hidden into the text. It's like, if you, if you go through it slowly, at some point you might go, oh, I see what they're doing there especially if you know us. So if you do know us, if you've been with us for a while, or if you're new friends, please pick up a book. Uh, it, it does us uh, a favor. But also, I think it's a, it's a kind of thing where I've got a lot of books, but these are the kind of books that you can just have on your shelf and you can always go back to. You can have it on a coffee table. People can pick it up, read a random page. It's not, it's, it's not that bulky of a thing to have around. Give it to a friend this season. And we also have the Kindle version. You get the Kindle version. Share uh, share this in information with others if you can do us that favor and uh, stick with us uh, for, for all, all these sorts of journeys that we have together. It's, uh, it's meaningful. This is how we get through this wild world. Yeah. Until next time, friends. Peace upon peace. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP. And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.